The following sermon is from Grace Church East County. More information about Grace Church is available at gracechurcheast.org. The book of Revelation chapter 11. There are some Bibles in the back as well. Quick reorientation before Amy reads. I think this might be helpful for following along. Three cycles of judgment in this book. We're in the second one, the trumpets. Each of these cycles look at the same period of time between Jesus' first coming and second coming. We saw last week the first six of those trumpets. But now, before the seventh trumpet, an excursus. As if the apostle pauses to say, what's going on with the church? during this time of judgment, this period between Jesus' first and second coming. What's going on with the church of Jesus Christ? Keep that in mind as Amy reads from Revelation chapter 11. Revelation 11, chapters one, or chapter 11, verses 1 through 14. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands, that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours out from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents, because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath from the life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Amy. May God bless his word today to our hearts and minds. How do you think about the present and future of the church? How do you think about that? What comes to your mind? How do you think about the present and the future of the worldwide 
body of Christ? Are you highly optimistic? The church will always enjoy unfettered growth and prosperity. Things will only get better and better. A kind of golden age arrives before Jesus returns. Or are you highly pessimistic? The church is hopelessly defeated in the world. The culture is just too far gone. We need to just simply hunker down till the end. Or maybe you just see the church as simply irrelevant. Which category best describes you and how you think about the church? In chapter 10, the Apostle John sees a mighty angel holding a scroll, and John is told to eat that scroll. And here's what he says, chapter 10, verse 10. Chapter 10, verse 10. It, the scroll, was sweet, sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I'd eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. The sweetness of God's word but bitterness as it's digested, you might say. And we're supposed to experience both this morning in chapter 11. The sweet and the bitter. Now, some say that the bitterness here is because our message includes judgment, and that may be the case. But I would lean towards seeing the bitterness as the church's experience of suffering because of what chapter 11 now unpacks, and because of what many Christians around the world and historically have experienced. In the 1880s, Dr. William Leslie, a Canadian pharmacist, knew the sweetness of God's word and God's gospel and wanted to take that good news to Africa and use his medical skills there. So he married another missionary, and together they went to the Congo, offering medical treatment and the good news of Christ. In 1912, the Leslies decided to take the gospel, the good news, to a more remote people group, one that was still practicing cannibalism in the area. With immense effort, the Leslies built the Vanga Mission Station and spent 17 years offering medical help and the good news in a spiritually dark place. Then one day, we don't know why, the Leslies were told to leave. They were no longer welcome in or around Vanga. They came back home to the States dejected, their efforts in vain. That's what John tastes and what we're to taste. Sweetness of God's word and God's gospel. And yet the bitterness of inevitable suffering and opposition. Chapter 11 unpacks those things to shape your thinking about the church. Chapter 11 wants to help you hold both of those together the sweetness and the bitterness. And it uses three snapshots to do that. Three snapshots of the church. Snapshot number one, the church secure and opposed. Snapshot number one, the church secure and opposed. 
chapter 11, verse 1. Then, the Apostle John writes, Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and when I was told, I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. John is told to measure this visionary temple that he sees and and those who are worshiping there. A symbolic action that speaks of God's ownership and God's protection of those people. God's people here are are spiritually secure. They're where God himself dwells in his presence, in this temple. They were sealed, you recall, sealed in chapter 7. Same idea in chapter 10. God's people secure in his presence, but, verse 2, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, John is told. For it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Now, the actual temple in Jerusalem, which which I think by this time had been destroyed, but we're not going to debate that right now. The actual temple had an outer court, the court of the Gentiles. So for this visionary temple, John is told, don't measure that part, that outer part. It's given over to the nations. And some see this as the the unfaithful church, quote unquote, the unfaithful part of the church being trampled on. But the context of the chapter is going to show us the faithful, the faithful being oppressed, the faithful being opposed. Notice the change in metaphor in verse 2. They will trample the holy city. And this is God's people. This is the church being trampled on, it says, for 42 months. That equals the 1,260 days you find in verse 3, or three and a half years if you use a 30-day month. Three and a half years. The background for that is a little bit helpful for us. The background is Daniel's prophecy and some of Israel's history. In the second century BC, a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes brought great suffering to the Jewish people for about three and a half years. And that that fixed period of suffering was sort of embedded in the psyche of many people. It's like for us, if you hear someone reference September 11th, you know immediately what they're talking about, and you have an association of a day of terror That's what this is like. 42 months or 1,260 days or three and a half years. It's a fixed period of time of suffering. It comes to represent here the church age, basically. The time between Jesus' ascension and his return. A fixed period of time when God allows at least some of his people to suffer. I think that's the bitterness John experienced. But but catch the sweetness here too. The church is measured in God's presence, spiritually secure. Now we might say, with all this trampling going on, I don't want just spiritual security. I want physical security in this life. I want to be physically protected from suffering. And look, I want the same. 
Sign me up for the same. But God is here keeping us in the way we most need and must have. In John chapter 10, Jesus says of his sheep, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. No matter the hardship you're experiencing, no matter the difficulty or challenge in your life right now, no matter the financial uncertainty or maybe the health uncertainty or the uncertainty with your kids or your parents or your family or your friends, no matter what you're going through, if you are Jesus's, he holds you in his hand. You are, you are measured like that. He holds on to you. You are secure. You're in the Father's hand. No one can snatch you from the Father's hand and nothing can take you away from his love. We begin with the church. Secure and oppressed. Snapshot two. The church witnessing and conquered. There's a second snapshot. John is like that. It's like a kaleidoscope of images. Second snapshot. The church witnessing and apparently conquered. Look now at verse 3. And I will grant to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for that 1260 days, that 42 months, that time between Jesus' ascension and return. So here's the church again, now being symbolized by two witnesses, an illusion from the Old Testament prophet Zechariah, here applied to the church, clothed in sackcloth, it says clothed in sackcloth with a, with a message of repentance that we declare repentantly. And then verse 4, these, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. I told you it's a kaleidoscope. The two witnesses are now also two olive trees, sources of oil or anointing in Old Testament imagery, and two lampstands. That might ring a bell. Earlier, the seven real churches were each referred to as a, a lampstand before Christ, called to shine into the darkness as we are. But only two here, only two, probably because of the Old Testament requirement for two witnesses to substantiate legal testimony. See, John is piling up imagery, symbolism, Witnesses, olive trees, lampstands, I think, to represent the church and our witness-bearing function in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the church preserving and proclaiming the gospel. The church as the pillar and buttress of the truth, as the Apostle Paul puts it. The church testifying to God's grace and God's mercy and God's love with our lips and our lives. And then, did you catch verse 5? From these witnesses, it says, quote, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. Now, you might think this would make a really interesting movie, but you've got to think symbolism here. God is, God is protecting his witnessing church. 
I believe, is the reference. God is protecting his witnessing people. They have power to shut the sky so it doesn't rain, turn water to blood, strike the earth with plagues. Who does this thing remind you of? Elijah and Moses from the Old Testament. The church bears witness in the spirit and power of Elijah and Moses, the power of God in the gospel we proclaim. I think of Doug Ruff getting baptized today after our service. Doug wrote that as part of his spiritual journey, he was invited to a Bible study down at the beach. There he met a guy named Eric Lemkule. Eric invited him to our Life Explored course and then our Christianity Explored course. And Doug is getting baptized today because lives are changed through the power of the Holy Spirit in the sweetness of this gospel. But there's bitterness here too, isn't there? Verse 7, and when they have finished their testimony, notice that, when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. We're not told more about the beast yet. We'll see more in chapter 13, but its demonic origin, its demonic origin is clear. It rises from the bottomless pit, the, the abyss, and the beast, we're told, will make war on the church and conquer the church and kill the church, it would seem. This happens in verse 8 in a, in a hostile world, what Augustine called the city of man, arrayed in opposition against the city of God. That world here holds these witnesses, the church, in such disdain that they don't bury the corpses. They don't give the bodies a proper burial. But notice verse 9. Verse 9 says, this is just for three and a half days. Okay, a play on the three and a half year period that we saw earlier, meaning a, a comparatively much shorter period of time. So a short period of time compared with a much longer period of time that God uses the church for his purposes. But I think what this is saying, I think what this is saying, is that near the end, much worse times come for the church. As Satan is allowed to wage war against the church, even to the point of apparently conquering the church, happening in ways in countries that are persecuting the church, like Mindy reminded us of last week. Before the end, it would appear here that Satan is given more authority to rage against us. And it will look like the church is dead. Did you see verse 10? People give gifts to each other in verse 10. They exchange presents for this apparent victory over the church. A holiday is declared. It's like Christmas, demonic style. We killed them. Notice why in verse 10. 
Because these two prophets, symbolizing the church, had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. It's a torment because the good news we declare about Jesus says bad news about us. The bad news that we're sinners, rebels against infinite holiness. Take that in. We've rebelled against infinite justice. We cannot save ourselves, but are utterly hopeless and helpless left to ourselves. Look, the human heart does not like that. But friends, it need not torment you. If you are here and you don't yet know this Savior, Oh, I just want to say, the bad news is awfully bad. The good news is awfully amazing. That Jesus Christ lived, died, and rose to take away your sins and bring you to God. And if you surrender to him today and hope only in Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection, Your sins are taken away, your guilt atoned for, and you are made God's beloved child. And I would urge you to turn to him. So, so, the church is apparently conquered here. A kind of death here, near the end of time. I've been reading... John Mark Comer's book, Live No Lies, almost about halfway through. I think Comer has some help helping us connect a little bit with this. Comer says the church in the West especially is a a cognitive minority, a cognitive minority. We have views and values increasingly at odds with our host culture. He says, quote, track this, he says, quote, With the radical moral reversal around human sexuality, gender, and the life of the unborn, we now have the moral low ground in many people's eyes. The moral low ground. He says, Jesus' vision of human sexuality is perceived as immoral by a large swath of the population. He goes on to say, that means we're not just seen as weird anymore, but increasingly dangerous. I think that's helpful to realize. But the solution is not to meet rage with rage. The solution is not to meet intolerance with our own intolerance. The solution is not to seize the levers of power and influence. The solution is to be the witnessing church Jesus calls us to be. Preserving the gospel. Protecting the gospel. Proclaiming the gospel. A faithful pillar and buttress of the truth. A faithful lampstand shining into the darkness with God's mercy, grace, and love. In fact, with all this sobering bitterness here, I was reminded of something that Steve said to me recently about our need for spiritual formation. That's an emphasis that we're um, accenting right now to be more and more formed to the image of Jesus. 
as people growing in love, love for God, love for neighbor. Steve pointed out to me how spiritual formation is about building spiritual resiliency. It's about building resilient disciples. And that's why we're doing the Sabbath stuff, to be resilient followers of Jesus. People more and more formed to be like the Savior as we live out our lives counterculturally, you might say, following him with faith and love as we have been so loved ourselves. And then, snapshot number three. Snapshot number three, the church raised and vindicated. Oh, all looks lost and It's a challenging chapter, but it doesn't look pretty. And then snapshot three. The church is raised and vindicated. Verse 11. But after the three and a half days, that short period of time, the breath of life or the spirit of life from God entered them, these witnesses symbolizing the church, and they stood up on their feet and great fear, great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven like we sang about in a cloud and their, their enemies watched them. Now these witnesses, the church, is is revitalized. It's imagery from Ezekiel 37, where God's people returned from exile, where they were just previously a valley of dry bones. So here, that's applied to the church. What does it mean? Is it a spiritual revival? Is it resurrection from the dead? It's hard to say. I thought about the church in China oppressed by its government, and yet rapidly expanding underground for decades. Same thing happening in Iran today. Maybe it's that kind of experience on a worldwide scale. I'm not sure. At a minimum, it's the church being vindicated by God in the end. In fact, the end begins... In verse 13, an earthquake destroys a tenth of the city, 7,000 people signaling, signaling God's final judgment has begun. People give glory to God. Maybe genuine conversion, maybe begrudgingly acknowledging Jesus is Lord. Regardless, the church is revived or the church is raised and vindicated. Friends, do you taste some of the sweetness and bitterness here that John tasted. Is your thinking about the church being shaped at all? It's not unfettered optimism or extreme pessimism and certainly not mere irrelevance. I would say there's a a biblical realism here, a biblical realism. I realize a realism that, that recognizes the bitter. That recognizes the bitter. There, there's a view of the end times that, that is orthodox, that says we're approaching this golden age with things getting better and better and better before Jesus comes back. And some today want to kind of 
usher in that golden age by Christianizing the nations, including this nation. Let's put the Ten Commandments into the Constitution. Let's make the law of Moses entirely the law of the land. We have a committed Christian as now Speaker of the House, so it must be happening, right? I think all of that is too optimistic. There are difficult days for the church now and worse to come. However you interpret this passage, it's not pretty in the end. We need to have right expectations, don't we? Right expectations. Expect difficulty for the church. Expect opposition. God is saying anticipate that so that you're not surprised when it happens. You're not shocked. You're not cynical as I can get. You're not despairing. Think about it this way. We've been rescued from a a sinking ship (laughs) during a fierce storm. If you are Jesus's, he has put you into the sure lifeboat called the church, measured by Jesus, secure in him. Our rescue is certain, but there are choppy waters until we reach that shore. The storm is still raging and it's going to get worse. Let us be spiritually resilient disciples, spiritually formed more and more as people who love that we might be the witnessing church God calls us to be. I think the optimists are adjusted here, but the pessimists are adjusted too. The pessimists are adjusted by this biblical realism. God's people are measured. They're From heaven's perspective, in his presence, safe in his temple, spiritually secure, nothing can take you out of his hand. Nothing. Nothing can happen to you tomorrow if you are his that will take you out of his hand. Or for the slightest moment, separate you from his love. And notice this death-like experience near the end, it doesn't happen until after the church has finished her witnessing mission. Did you notice that? Look back to verse 7. It says, when they have finished their testimony. That's very encouraging. When they have finished their testimony, only then is the beast allowed to conquer for a brief period of time. You know, there's a lot of talk about the great de-churching happening around us, and I'm sure that's quite real in ways. But I think God is calling us here to a right hope as well. Right expectations, but a right, a right hope. The church is secure, and the church will finish her mission and in the end be vindicated. I thought about how in the 16th century England, bishops Hugh Latimer, and Nicholas Ridley were known, known for their allegiance to Scripture and the glory of Christ in the Protestant Reformation. And then Mary I came to the throne, a.k.a. Bloody Mary. She violently resisted that Reformation. So bishops Latimer and Ridley were arrested, spent 18 months in a cell in the Tower of London, and then were tied to the stake to be burned in Oxford. 
As the fires began to burn around them, Latimer raised his voice and famously said, quote, be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England, as I trust shall never be put out. Three years later, Queen Mary died. That candle still burns in England almost 500 years later. God knows how to vindicate his people. Or think about the Leslies. Came back from the Congo dejected. Their efforts fruitless. Fast forward 100 years. It's a true story. In 2010, a mission team set out for that area, the Vanga Mission Station, expecting to find tribal groups pretty much entirely unreached by the good news of Jesus. They canoed and backpacked far into the jungle until they came into contact with the tribe the Leslies had ministered to about a century before. The team leader in 2010 says, quote, we found a network of reproducing churches throughout the jungle. Each village had its own gospel choir, although they wouldn't call it that, he says. They wrote their own songs and would have sing-offs from village to village. They found a church in each of the eight villages they visited, scattered across 34 miles because a reproducing church planting movement had begun. They did some investigation. How did this happen? and discovered the spiritual roots of this network of churches went back to the Leslies. Unbeknownst to them, Jesus was building his church. Oh, there are bitter times coming. It's very sobering times, it would appear. But Christ is building his church. So friends, hold the sweetness of the gospel and the reality of this bitter opposition at times. Hold them together in biblical realism. God's purposes for the church will all be accomplished. Let's pray together. And I don't know what the Holy Spirit's been speaking to you about this morning, but... This is a chance we give you to just respond to God. Maybe it's taking to heart biblical realism as you think about the church of Jesus Christ around the world with not unfettered optimism or hopeless pessimism or some irrelevance. Or maybe it's in turning to Jesus right now that you might know the sweetness of his love and mercy and grace. Whatever that is for you, take this moment to silently engage with God.
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, lift our eyes. Use the lens of your word to give us right expectations and, oh, a right hope as well. Come what may, you reign and rule, and all your purposes in and through the church shall be accomplished. Let us believe this and live in light of it. For Christ's sake, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church East County. Please find us online at gracechurcheast.org if you would like to find out more about us.